democracy. Five and five. Hello, my name is Peter Sparding. I'm a fellow here at the German Marshall Fund, and welcome back to another episode of Out of Order. Given the news of the past few days with the uh, departure of Ambassador Bolton from the National Security Council, we thought let's talk about that topic. With me here in DC is my colleague Sydney Simon, and we are joined remotely by two GMF experts who could not be better suited to discuss this issue. So we have Derek Chollet, who's GMF's executive vice president and has served in an array of key positions in the national security team of the Obama administration, including a stint at the National Security Council. And with him, we have John Gans, who's the director of communications and research at Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And for this topic, even more fittingly, has literally written the book on the National Security Council. It's called White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. And remind me, John, it just came out in May. Is that right? That's, a, that's right. May and available everywhere. <laughs> exactly. And they should go out and buy it. So let's talk about the National Security Council and the National Security Advisor. Obviously, John Bolton left his position this week. We don't know exactly if he quit or if he was asked to leave. A lot to talk about. When I prepared for this, I was looking at what John and Derek had written about Ambassador Bolton lately, and I found it these two op-eds you guys had written that were kind of nice bookends. So Derek, in March 2018, wrote a piece for Defense One that had the headline, John Bolton will not end well. And then John had a piece this week in the New York Times, how John Bolton broke the National Security Council. John, since you have studied this so extensively, maybe you can help us understand what actually is the National Security Council. How does it function? Maybe give us some background on the institution and the role of the National Security Advisor in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. So good to be with the GMF folks. Um, the important thing to remember about the National Security Council is that Franklin Roosevelt won World War II without one. He was able to sort of manage America's war machine and manage relations with Great Britain and other countries and other allies, uh, mostly by himself and with a handful of aides in a very ad hoc style. The, bre the, the problem was is that kind of drove everybody who worked in national security crazy. They thought the issues and the stakes were too high for any one person to sort of have all of the decision-making power. And so after the war was won, members of Congress, members of the military officer corps, members of the State Department, and even parts of the uh, Harry Truman White House came together to try and figure out a better way to make decisions in the post-war world where the United States was sort of the supreme power in many ways, and especially in the immediate aftermath of the war with nuclear weapons and things along those lines. But the Cold War wasn't, you know, uh, was showing sort of signs of getting even colder. And they came together and basically said, we need to get everybody in a room to make the big decisions of foreign policy. So they basically created a council, the National Security Council, which was basically that, just a, a statutory body that required all the big names in national security. So the president, the vice president, secretary of defense, secretary of state, and others to come together in, around one table and consider the issues, ask the hard questions, and try to integrate America's foreign policy. So using its military, economic, diplomatic tools. They basically said, if you're going to get that many big names in a room, you're going to need somebody to make sure they show up on time, know what they're going to talk about, and know what they decide. So they created a secretarial staff, a small staff that was basically charged with pushing the papers. That little staff ended up growing into a uh, basically an institution in government. The small staff, which had about a dozen people when the, when the National Security Council was created, now has several hundred uh, working at the old executive office building. And out of that staff, a new position was created by President Dwight 
D. Eisenhower, who I know Derek is studying right now, uh, who created the National Security Advisor position. Uh, although that is not the formal title, that's sort of the informal title. The official title is Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. And those three sort of little changes in Washington, the National Security Council, the National Security Advisor, and the National Security Council staff have basically evolved over 70 years to be the sort of engine of foreign policy. It's basically a running conversation made up of memos and meetings that basically help feed decisions up to the president, feed information up to the president, and then takes those decisions that the president makes and puts them into out to the bureaucracy and the operators in the military and in the diplomatic corps to implement. So that's the National Security Council as it was meant to work and sort of how it has worked over the past 70 years and created a basic regular order to decision-making in Washington. Okay, thanks for that. So John Bolton was already the third National Security Advisor of President Trump. You wrote, as I mentioned earlier, that the National Security Council is now broken. Derek, you were worried about his tenure. What is the general sentiment? Does the system, as uh, just described by John, no longer function? And if so, what has happened over the last few years in this process? Derek, I don't know if you want to jump in on that, maybe. First, I, I wish I could say that I had some unique foresight to see that the Bolton tenure was going to be rocky and short. But most folks who had observed uh, John Bolton over the years and who had watched Donald Trump as president for the previous couple of years saw that this was going to be a stormy relationship um, because of their uh, fundamental differences on policies uh, as well as uh, uh, fundamental differences on the way the process should be run. Um, Look, the, the, the core job of the National Security Advisor, who presides over the, the staff and the process, as John has outlined, is to support the president, to staff the president, uh, to make sure the president has the information that uh, he or someday she will need to make decisions, and to coordinate the interagency, to help bring the various agencies of government and the players together to ensure that decisions get made and implemented. Those are the core core tasks. John Bolton failed at both of those tasks. He neither staffed the president particularly well, uh, nor did he coordinate the interagency. Uh, and I'll let John speak more to the piece that he wrote in the New York Times uh, just a few days ago about how he's broken the process. So, and this was quite clear for some time that, that it was not working out. I mean, whether it was measured by news stories or the fact that John Bolton was traveling quite a bit on his own, which when you're one of your core tasks is to staff the president. It's, it's very hard to do that when you're off in other countries doing your own kind of diplomacy. Uh, there tends to be a direct relationship in Washington, by the way, by the amount of time you're spending on the road versus at home in terms of your degree of effectiveness in Washington. It's oftentimes more satisfying for folks in government to be out in the world doing things rather than be stuck in windowless conference rooms. You know, when, you, when I saw Bolton pop up in Mongolia or Poland or... Latin America, he probably, no one has done the math, I don't think yet, but it'd be interesting to know, I would argue he's probably traveled more in 18 months than nationals, most national security advisors do in entire terms. Yeah, probably traveled alone more. Travel alone more. Not, I mean, travel, of course, travel with the president, but tra your own diplomatic missions, it's quite rare uh, that a national security advisor does that. It makes it regular. But all that said, and this is, I'll throw it to John after making this point, because it leads right into his, his most recent New York Times piece is that one of the truisms of the national security process is that the presidents get a, the process that they want. Dwight Eisenhower had a process that was you know, 
know, very disciplined, very thorough, very formal, uh, long, detailed National Security Council meetings that he would preside over with pages and pages of, of documents and minute, you know, careful minutes kept. Uh, George H.W. Bush and his team, which is seen as kind of setting the gold standard for the national security process, actually had a somewhat more informal process. Uh, they all knew one another very well. They all trusted another one another very well. They made a lot of very good, important decisions. Uh, but, but when you compare it, say, to Eisenhower, it was, it was a little less formalized. Uh, Barack Obama had a famously deliberate, some would argue perhaps too deliberate, of a process, very careful, very cautious, asking all the tough questions, lawyering things uh, quite a bit. Um, Donald Trump doesn't really care much about process. I don't think he understands it. I don't think in what happens below him doesn't really matter to him. He thinks it's unimportant. I think maybe the, the two words interagency process maybe haven't even been uttered in his presence. Uh, so in that argument, maybe, you know, Bolton gave him what he wanted, which was essentially a situation where he is the one making all the decisions. He does. He relies on an eclectic group of advisors, some in the government, some not in the government, some Fox News personalities, some random celebrities and hangers-on. Uh, and therefore why Bolton failed was not because he didn't run the process that Trump wanted. It was that he failed because he got a lot, he was pushing policy issues that Trump didn't like. He was getting bad press or the kind of press that made Trump angry. So this leads us into what comes next. I think we'll probably see the same result that we've seen to this point, which is a pretty erratic, chaotic, unpredictable process. I think through history, you've seen some presidents get the the, pol the process they want, right? They get the NSC they want, right? Um, there are some people that have very specific ideas about it. Some get the NSC process they deserve, right? Which is that sometimes they're just lackadaisical or they don't manage it well and they kind of get a mess on their behalf. The good example is the Ronald Reagan one who sort of took a, such a hands-off approach to managing national security that, you know, eventually some of his aides almost led to the downfall of his own presidency in the Iran-Contra affair in which they, they took sort of matters into their own hands. But I think a lot of presidents need staff to help them get the process they need to make decisions well. And I think the one ray of hope that was probably there um, when Derek was writing his piece was that John Bolton was, is a good bureaucrat. He knows how to work government, right? He is an inside guy and in theory could have been this sort of bureaucrat that John, Donald Trump needed to sort of work the levers of power, right? That conceivably could have happened. The challenge is that John Bolton, I think, was interested in using the levers of power for his own policy preferences, whether it was in Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, or wherever, right? So he had hardline views that he wasn't willing to sort of give up in order to serve what the president wanted, and sometimes those came into conflict. The other issue is, is that he really didn't seem to... His idea of decision-making, I think, was a little different than in some ways what Donald Trump wants, which is I think he envisioned, and he basically has said this, which is like just him and a couple people in the room with the president and help, helping the president make these big decisions. And that, that doesn't seem to be what Donald Trump wants. He doesn't want somebody there telling him what to do. And in fact, he sort of used the White House and the presidency a little bit more like Franklin Roosevelt did, who everybody sort of has said, basically, they created the National Security Council because of the way he managed the war, which was 
you know, it scared people to death because he viewed it, I think one of his biographers said he basically viewed it as like a family seat. Like, this is like a family business. I get to make all the decisions I want, all the powers in me, and the presidency is me. That sounds a lot like Donald Trump. FDR was kind of a juggler, right? His, what he called himself, which was that he basically was interested in going on and just kind of making the decisions as he saw fit giving sort of contradictory orders, confusing orders, keeping people on their toes. That's his idea of strategy. And to a degree, that matches pretty well with Donald Trump. Um, and so what you had was, that's not how I think John Bolton envisions making policy. And unfortunately, I think what he did was, in an effort to try and pursue his own policies and sort of help convince the president of what those policies were, he broke the policy process that would give other ideas to the president, leaving the president sort of one channel of information and one channel of ideas. And when Donald Trump sort of turned on John Bolton, as it has been pretty public for months now, you know, he has gone on the record with the press saying that he doesn't agree with John Bolton, which is a big step, right? You know, it's basically saying that John Bolton, the national security advisor, doesn't speak on behalf of the president or at least speak with the same views as the president, that you end up in a situation where any process, any information channel sort of broke down and Donald Trump was sort of juggling on his own. And so I think that is kind of why this became more and more unsustainable and why it probably came to a head this week. But it also sort of, I think, shows you that either somebody is going to have to go to great lengths to match the process to Donald Trump style, or we're going to kind of continually end up in this anarchy. But again, I, John, this, I don't, I just wonder if he, this is Trump style. Like he doesn't want a process. He just wants to free kind of freewheel. I mean, tr Trump was tr always attracted to the Fox News personality, John Bolton, right? But the reason why he got hired, the reason why he was able to overcome his uh, reservations about Bolton's mustache was because <laughs> he liked the idea that I want this guy who's on Fox News, who's articulate, who's willing to stick it to, you know, people who don't support me, who's willing to call out weak need allies or Europeans and to talk a big game. And he loves that. But of course, we've all now learned Trump likes to talk big, but he doesn't really mean it. So it's interesting, like if, if Trump actually would follow through on that side of him, the kind of talk tough, the macho side, Bolton could have been quite effective, right? Where he ran aground was, you know, Trump loves to talk tough on Iran, but we is chasing the Iranians right now because he wants to meet with them, right? I mean, you can't say a bad thing about Kim Jong-un. He wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David, right? So he's got, it's, that's where, you know, and Bolton, argue, to his credit in this respect, is actually principled. I mean, I may not agree with his ideas, but you know where he's coming from. He's held these ideas consistently over his entire career. He has fought like hell to, and, and often fought dirty to implement those ideas. He quite apparently made it clear to Trump what he thought of Trump's instincts on some of this stuff, and that's where he he ran afoul. Yeah, uh, and I mean, Trump made that clear yesterday when he said he blamed, he, one of the reasons he got rid of him was because of the Iraq war, which exactly. is basically, <laughs> exactly. it's like firing somebody a year, 17 months later for the first line on their CV, or exactly. the first thing they said in their job interview. <laughs> exactly. you know, it doesn't really make sense. I think freestyle is definitely sort of the, and juggling is the Trump way. I think there is a way to get different ideas into them. Like you could basically have somebody that's a little bit more freestyle and a little more willing to sort of switch on a dime on their policy positions. I think there's probably somebody out there that would be willing to do that and a, the system could conceivably fit in there, right? There's a process that could fit into freestyling, being like much more open to flexibility in the options papers. <laughs> Just being like, you can pick one, two or three, you know, give you three good options and yeah. let it rip. But 
it doesn't seem as though John Bolton was willing to do that, or perhaps right. even the rest of the government's willing to do that. I mean, I right. think I think the the underlying story here is, is that like there's another piece of this, which is there's a there is a, a piece of government that has been tough on Donald Trump, right? There is a piece of government that has not been easy for him to manage, and and it hasn't been an easy marriage between Donald Trump and the government. Well, right. I mean, look, all presidents struggle with the government implementing things that they have decided to do. And it's not because it's a deep state resisting the will of the president. It's because it's a gigantic bureaucracy with different funding lines, different overseers in the Congress. And it's it's very hard to maneuver and to move. During the Obama administration, there, you would serving in the White House, you would be often carrying kind of two different views in your head about the rest of the government. You would either be saying, why is the rest of the government not doing something that the president had decided to do? Or you'd say, why are they doing something the president hasn't decided yet? They were going off on their own. Arguably, if if Bolton and Trump were more aligned on policy, you could have seen someone like Bolton be very effective in implementing Trump's wishes. For example, like a Stephen Miller, uh, uh, who's arguably been one of the most effective, if not, if not the most effective, uh, policy staffers to Trump, doing things that I think are terrible for the country, but nevertheless, has been doing them quite successfully, using yeah. rules and the tools of the executive branch to implement policies that have fundamentally changed U.S. immigration policy, oftentimes testing the U.S. legal system in the process. But I think it's interesting, the, the question I sort of have is, is that what the impact, I mean, I think this freestyling president, I think most people hoped either two things when Donald Trump came in office, either he would grow into the job somehow or that the government or the adults in the room would be able to sort of at least keep him out of trouble. And I think what we're finding is, is that he, I think, has become more confident in the job, perhaps, and less willing to listen to anybody or, or – or, and I think less, in, less sort of awed by – those who have been in official positions, whether they're generals or anybody else. He's kind of run through enough people now where I don't think he's necessarily um, awed by anybody. The second thing is I think that he is, to a degree, I think, put in a position where he is now, I think, people are, trust is so broken within the interagency, within the process, that it's going to be very hard for anybody to sort of step up. And so you actually end up in a situation where this juggling, this sort of freestyling is a big change for the world, right? I mean, it's if you were sitting, I mean, I think this week is one of those ones where if you were, you know, we all worry about the big events, whether it's, you know, Brexit or worried about, you know, what's happening with Hong Kong protesters or whatever is happening in with North, North Korea's latest missile tests. You know, this is a big change for the world order is, is that the U.S. government has reverted to sort of freestyle juggling. You know, that's a big change. And it's, I think, one of those ones where America's credibility as a global leader is put into question because it's hard to sort of defend your own status as a leader if you can't even govern yourself. And so that's a big change for the world. And I think that it's one that especially here at GMF, I mean, and 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 elsewhere are going to have to look at like what that means when there's a lot of questions about the future and the viability of the U.S.-led international order, but this is a big strike against it. The United States' inability to make decisions thoughtfully, rationally, and with some regular order is one of those things that has the potential to make crises much worse, um, whether it's Brexit, whether it's anything else. I want to go back to the actual policy issues on the table that um, Derek already referenced. And I'm old enough to remember a time where Donald Trump was announcing that he canceled a meeting with the Taliban at Camp David that much of 
his team didn't even know about. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what were the negotiations with the Taliban, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, and and what was happening on the inside there with John Bolton? Yeah, just take us through that a little bit and how that played out, because I think a lot of people are really interested in knowing what, what was happening there. It's a good question. One of the things that we, I think, have been reminded of this week, and perhaps the question of who shot John, did he quit, did he get fired, is so murky. It's it's like a lot of the mess that is the Donald Trump sort of foreign policy process, which is, you know, we don't really know. We get a lot of leaks. We get a lot of stories. We get a lot of like things that you're sort of told. And one of the one of the things I learned researching the book when I was writing about Donald Trump is that a lot of the things you do hear reported aren't exactly as and you know our experience in government is that you you see something reported and you're like, well, that's not exactly right. That's just as true in the Trump administration, right? So I think it's hard to necessarily make deep assumptions about what was going on. But it seems as though that Donald Trump, since he started running for president, has been pretty advocate about, a pretty strong advocate about sort of ending America's engagement in Afghanistan and sort of bringing America's troops home as part of his America first agenda and everything else. It seems as though he has some interest in trying to make some sort of deal before the 2020 election. That seems to have been one of the driving factors. That's a promise that he made, and it seems to be one of those things he's interested in keeping. That's a promise that's that's complicated, as Derek probably knows even better than I do, in terms of Afghanistan and America's engagement there. There's a lot of commitments that are made. There are a lot of things we would like to see done. There are a lot of risks that we would like to avoid as a country, and along with our NATO allies. And so you had a situation where his commitment ran into a lot of real pre-existing beliefs, whether it was with John Bolton, members of the military, members of Congress, things along those lines. And so he did, with the help of Secretary uh, of State Mike Pompeo and um, his envoy, Zal Kalizade, who has, uh, was on the NSC at one point, um, among other things, in the Bush administration, have sort of begun, ha- were putting in a lot of groundwork on this to, to perhaps reach some sort of agreement or, or peace deal with the Taliban and presumably members of the Afghan government, some of our other partners there. How far that got, I think we're, we've got a lot of mixed reports. Uh, how many of those parties were on board with a plan? I think we've got a lot of mixed reports. How close they were all to arriving at Camp David on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I think I have my doubts. But, you know, um, based on what I think we're hearing, it probably was a little less close. The, the tickets weren't exactly bought yet uh, when Donald Trump canceled the press, the, the sort of so-called Camp David Summit over Twitter last weekend. So I think there's a lot of murkiness. um, And I think that's one of the challenges with the Trump NSC, which is the trust within it has collapsed as the sort of different parties and different people have gotten frustrated with each other. And I think a lot of people's view of the information and ideas and decisions coming out and tweets coming out of the Trump administration are hard to trust, whether you're sitting here at GMF and Washington and the University of Pennsylvania up in Philly or in Kabul or wherever. It's hard to figure out what's the real decision, what's going on and where the United States is headed. And Sydney, I see this, the what, at least what happened, what we think happened around the, the non-meeting with the Taliban at Camp David. It's part of a piece here. And this is why I think Bolton finally said his piece and then either quit or was fired. Uh, or both. You know, Trump is, as John said, is heading into next year in the election. He's desperate to make a deal. And if, when you look across the various foreign policy initiatives or moves he's made, whether it's the trade war with China or 
North Korea, Afghanistan, pulling out of the Iran deal. There's there's not a lot of wins at this point. You've seen it on Afghanistan, where arguably of all of these processes, the Afghanistan one, because of the the work of Zalkalizad, has been the most kind of by the book in the sense of the way that, frankly, the Obama administration was thinking about going about doing this. Not the Taliban to Camp David, but having a senior envoy being willing, negotiating with the Taliban, that Trump has made it very clear. He signaled, because he's the thing about Trump is he telegraphs his punches, right? He doesn't base, uh, you know, he's, he's not very subtle on all this stuff. So it's pretty clear uh, he's desperate to see some progress with the North Koreans. Uh, he wants a deal on Afghanistan. He wants to get U.S. troops out, and he would love the idea of a big show with the Taliban and some some kind of summit. It's been widely rumored that in the next over the next several weeks during the UN General Assembly that there's he's very interested to, with a meeting with the Iranian president which would be a historic event completely half baked completely <laughs> unclear what the goal would be but as we've seen repeatedly over the last two and a half years he's not interested in any of that he just wants something where there's going to be a million cameras clicking john bolton was we can imagine that there was a lot of conversation about this behind closed doors was making clear that he did not think much of all of these ideas and these instincts. I'm old enough to remember a time when Barack Obama was being criticized for going on apology tours around the world and being too eager to talk to our enemies. Well, Donald Trump's changed the game completely and seems to be, if anything, bending over backwards and, and doing everything he can to talk to our enemies. And so arguably, I guess, this will contradict something I said earlier. Well, nothing will change. Well, I think, you know, if, if you don't have a Bolton-like figure in who's, who's at least trying to put the brakes or sabotage the president's efforts, whether through press leaks or stuff internally in the bureaucracy to, to follow through on these instincts, arguably that's gone now. So I think if I were to bet today, President Trump is, is really hoping he can sit down with President Rouhani of Iran in two weeks. Now, the Iranians may not do that. They may not want to have that meeting for their own reasons but I'm pretty sure President Trump wants to have it. So we started by talking about how Franklin Roosevelt managed the process pretty much with a small group by himself and how we maybe have come full circle, albeit with a very different kind of president than Franklin Roosevelt. And I should say, despite Roosevelt doing this during World War II, I think times have changed immensely. There are a lot more complex issues. So maybe in a very quick final round here, what does it mean that the world's superpower is essentially currently without a process when it comes to the national security policy management. And how worried are you for the next uh, few months? Well, I'm very worried. I mean, I'm, look, what it means for anyone trying to understand what's happening inside the U.S. government, uh, you're going to, you have to be resigned to the fact it's going to remain unpredictable. It's going to remain erratic. There's going to be things that are going to be kind of slapdash, haphazard, not well thought through, lots of, you know, quick turns here and there. That's not good for business. That's not good in politics. That's not good in foreign policy. I am still struck that despite all of the chaos and turbulence of the last several years, the we still have really not confronted a, a genuine foreign policy crisis yet. We just commemorated and honored those lives that were lost on 9-11. I mean, we haven't had anything remotely close to something like that, let alone an embassy bombing or the Benghazi attack that I lived through, the aftermath of that inside the government. This administration hasn't faced something like that. Lots of crises of its own making, arguably, but when a process is as broken as it is and with the lack of trust in the system, 
and with a president that's kind of, you know, willing to almost go to any lengths to prove that he was right, including by, you know, doing his own weather forecasts, we should be concerned about what happens, very concerned, you know, if the unexpected happens. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I, I absolutely agree. The only thing I would add is, is, you know, the short term, any of these little crises out in the world could pop into something bigger. Cashmere right. could you know, blow up, right? Just, it's, it's just the nature of this stuff. A few, you're a little slow. You're, you know, you don't pick up the phone as fast. You don't do things happen. Uh, I think in the medium term, like in the like next two three years, we have there's big questions that need to be made. Big decisions the United States needs to be made on trade war, on NATO, on Russia, and things along these lines. And to a degree, a lack of trust, it, it's very hard to get that back in national security once it's sort of shot, right? And, you know, there's not a time for corporate retreats and trust falls and, and all these sorts of things because time is short and the stakes are high and nobody figures, you know, nobody, everybody thinks, thinks trust can wait till next week. But the thing is, it's essential. In the long term, I assume and I think that, you know, people abroad will start doing the things they do when the United States looks out of control, right? We've seen this in our own lifetime, right? Like in the Iraq war, when the country started doing soft balancing and starting talking about other, you know, moving the United States out of the center of the international order, whether it's the UN or World Bank or things along those lines, right? Those decisions are, you know, there, there were countries having those decisions before Donald Trump was uh, elected and, and things along those lines. And the last thing I'd say is, is that it's one more thing that the next president's going to have to do. They're going to have to rebuild how Washington makes decisions. And, you know, just as they did in Roosevelt, that wasn't easy. Building a credible system that worked for a lot of people in Washington wasn't easy, and it happened through a lot of trial and error. And so it's another task that's going to be on the to-do list of the next president, whether it's in two years or six. And, uh, you know, we'll go from there. I think I asked for this episode to end on a negative note by asking you this question. So apologies for that. But I think with that, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Sydney and John and Derek, for joining us. I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon.